is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman, the Special House Committee, looking into the events before, during, and after the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, kicks off a series of hearings. It's laying out a case that it says will show how former President Trump planned with others to overturn the 2020 election results, which then led to the insurrection. So we will go in-depth into whether the American public will be paying attention. The hearing, by the way, is a primetime special carried by all the major TV networks, cable news stations, except for one, Fox News. Will its viewers get an accurate summary of what happened? And a candidate for governor in Michigan is now charged with taking part in that January 6th insurrection. One of the biggest names in golf among those suspended from the PGA Tour for taking part in this competing league funded by Saudi Arabia. We'll go in-depth into whether the PGA will let Phil Mickelson back in. New data emerging showing developmental problems in the youngest kids. The pandemic might be responsible for this. NASA wants to get to the bottom of the UFO mystery. And L.A. drivers have probably been merging wrong this whole time. We will talk about zipper merging and why it's the best way to do it, apparently. Oh, and don't get me started about <laughs> L.A. drivers because merging... <laughs> Merging is just one of the, the many problems. Close your eyes and hope for the best, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, wow. Zipper merging. Okay. Uh, we start, though, with the January 6th hearings. With us now is L.A. Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu. Congressman, thanks for being with us. So my question is, with so many things happening in this world, we're still in a pandemic. Uh, you know, we're paying six bucks plus for gas at the pump. Food prices are going through the roof. Do you think that a lot of Americans, do you think a lot of your constituents care anymore about January 6th? Uh, thank you, Charles and Mike, uh, for having me on and answering your question. I actually believe that people do care about their attack on our nation's capital. 140 police officers were injured, some seriously, and this was an assault on our democracy. The bipartisan January 6th hearings are going to tell the American people what happened on January 6th, what led up to it, and what happened afterwards. So they care. Do you think they also need a reminder? Is that probably what some of this is? Show the video, remind people how bad it actually was? Because there's been a lot of time separating now and then, it feels like. Yes. Yeah, so the purpose of the hearings are to show the American people what happened, but also to let the American people know this wasn't just a one-day event. There was significant planning that led up to it. There was this attack on the Capitol, and then there continued to be the big lie afterwards, trying to somehow convince the American people that the former president won the election when he emphatically got crushed in a popular vote and lost multiple swing states in Electoral College. You know, you, you said uh, bipartisan in referring to the committee. And yes, you're right. There are two Republicans on it, although they're they're kind of now the, the sort of black sheep of the Republican family. Most Republicans, as you know, through all the polling that's been done, do not believe that there was a an insurrection. They do not believe that Donald Trump was trying to, uh, you know, usurp the Constitution and, and stay in office. They don't buy any of it. So what do you tell your constituents who might be leaning in that direction? They are wrong. If you look at the multiple cases that the Department of Justice has brought, a number of them include charges like seditious conspiracy, 
people have pled guilty to the attack on the Capitol. And what the hearings are going to show is that this was an insurrection. This was a planned attack on the Capitol. And by the way, this is not only a bipartisan committee, but there were a number of Republicans on the committee that withdrew because Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, took them off of it. And so that is the fault of the Republican leader. This is a bipartisan committee. It was bipartisan in its origin, and it continues to be bipartisan. Should we do some expectation setting, new evidence? Yes, and there's going to be many of these for, for months as we move forward, but nothing in terms of a, a bombshell witness or anything like that, just connecting the dots, drawing the lines? Connecting the dots and drawing lines is very important. Uh, whether witnesses say bombshell things, uh, we shall see. I, I don't know the answer to that. I also uh, do know, having served as a House impeachment manager, that it was very clear uh, that this was not a random attack. The former president told people to come on January 6th. He didn't tell them to come on any other day. He specifically mentioned January 6th. He told them to march to the Capitol. He told them to fight. And we saw the outcome of the president trying to instill the big lie and then convincing people to try to do something about the big lie. And they, in fact, did on January 6th. L.A. Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu. Congressman, thanks. Fox News, the only major cable news station, opting not to carry the primetime hearing live. It's sticking with its usual lineup of hosts. Now, of course, many media experts say they're not surprised, given that Fox News has been far less critical of former President Trump and Republicans and their roles surrounding the 2020 election. Well, Karen North is a news and media expert. She's also the founder and former director of USC Annenberg's digital social media program. Karen, thanks for coming back with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So I'm guessing that you are probably among those who are not surprised that Fox has elected not to carry this. No shock, no awe. <laughs> <laughs> but what is the the message? Because there is a message that they are sending by their decision to be the only ones not carrying this. Uh, yes. I mean, it's interesting. I could, I mean, it's such a polarizing issue, all of these issues. And it goes back to sort of how news has evolved during this um, social media era. But, you know, I think that Fox would turn it around the other way and say that it's a big move on the part of others to preempt other programming in order to make this into a huge uh, media event. So you can look at it either way. You know, I'm sort of on the side of this is big news. It should be covered. They're on the side of this is just another congressional hearing, you know, and, and, but if you, my, my issue with news today is that when we were all young, we all watched the news, which made an effort to be objective. And then we gathered with like-minded friends at the water coolers or in the, you know, schoolyard. And we developed our opinions by discussing the news. But now most of us find our news from the people that we respect who are already opinion leaders. And we get our news already in the form of an opinion. And so, you know, even the traditional news, you know, sort of tells a story these days because news is a bit of, you know, a bit of news and a bit of entertainment so that you have to sort of please the viewers. There's so many news sources that we can find like-minded news and continue to develop our opinions instead of starting out with something more ambiguous. Right. We're all in our bubbles. But that's one of the Correct. key points 
here is the difference between, you know, not carrying it and putting it in news is, is you know, some networks will do or with various stories as warrants. But this with Fox is not carrying it and then sticking with your time slot, which is yeah. what Tucker Carlson, who has been obviously <laughs> yeah. alternate reality over this whole story. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the thing is that it's, you know, it's it's kind of amazing that any one source, you would think that at the very least they would cover they would cover it with commentary as opposed to just minimizing it in this way. But they've chosen to minimize it. It'll be interesting to see over the days and weeks that this continues to be a story because it's already been a story for quite some time. It'll be interesting to see how they try to, you know, use commentary to, um, you know, to, to create a narrative around it rather than, you know, they, I mean, they're not going to not report it. You know, I think that over the days and weeks and, you know, potentially months and years, they're going to continue to report it. But with, as a, you know, there will be a lot of commentary wrapped around it. And when you don't show it live, people only have the part that is shown on the news to, you know, to um, to use as their objective facts. You know what I've been musing about, uh, Karen, uh, ever since you said at the outset, when we were all young. <laughs> I, I know. Mean, I've been thinking about that since you said it. <laughs> so and by it's... the way, before, like, I, you know, I don't want to date myself too much either, but like before, you know, really before my time, it's like we, you know, we all, those of us who grew up a generation ago grew up hearing about, if not remembering, um, and some people clearly remembering the, uh, like Walter Cronkite yeah. version of the news, right? And that's sort of the standard that we all think should be, it should be that way. And I'm not even sure if, you know, a generation or, or two, depending on how you count the, the years, you know, it's, it's become more and more and more, um, you know, commentary and entertainment. And now we have it so, you know, echo chamber, um, polarized news. And it's a shame, you know, it's a shame that we don't see things in the same way or even hear like the, the order of things or whether things are covered is an editorial decision. Karen North, uh, founder and former director, USC Annenberg's digital social media program, news expert. Always one line from each of these that always sticks out, right? Yeah. That was the one this time. When we were all young. So as I reach for my Geritol, I remind you that (laughs) coming up next, a a candidate for governor in Michigan. (laughs) Charles Feldman here for Geritol. (laughs) Do they still make that stuff? I don't know. I have no idea. Republican candidate for governor of Michigan charged with misdemeanors for his alleged role in the January 6th riots at uh, the Capitol. Ryan Kelly among five GOP candidates challenging the current governor, Gretchen Whitmer. With us is uh, Charlie Langdon, reporter for WWJ News Radio in Detroit. Uh, Charlie, thanks for being here. So what is this alleged role? Well, I'll tell you what, this is Ryan Kelly. He was leading one poll in Michigan for the Republican nomination for governor. But uh, bottom line here is that there was an anonymous tip. Uh, there were other tips, screenshots, video, and the FBI decided there's enough evidence to arrest Ryan Kelly, 40 years old from the west side of Michigan, with basically four misdemeanor charges for basically uh, inciting a riot in the, in the January 6th. Uh, uh, insurrection. I'm really not inciting the riot. The charges are kind of damaging federal property and disorderly conduct and entering restricted grounds. So none of them are felonies. They're all misdemeanors. But the bottom line, he, he was in court today, and now he's got to appear in a, in a D.C., a District of Columbia court, Washington, D.C. court uh, at, the end of the, at the end of this month. Now, Charlie, of course, there was a time if a candidate for governor or may, any other office, frankly, were, was just busted for the things that you just uh, articulated, felonies or misdemeanors, wouldn't make a difference. It would seriously hurt their chances 
of running. They might even bow out of the race. But is there a possibility that at least among some Republican voters in your state that this is going to be a plus? I tell you, anyway, you just hit it on the head. I was just on the phone with a couple of people. This timing couldn't have been worse. Actually, there are some Republicans that are thinking that this is a witch hunt. And actually, Ryan Kelly may even get more publicity because of being arrested. I don't understand it, but that's the way it is. Yeah, listen, I mean, tonight uh, we're going to have this, uh, you know, the Capitol hearings in prime time. And a lot of Republicans, you know, they don't like it anyway. Uh, But there's definitely a timing issue that a lot of Republicans, even Republicans that are not supporting Ryan Kelly, are saying, wait a minute. I mean, you've had a year and a half to make an arrest. You didn't do it. You do it on the night. You're going to have a a national broadcast of this uh, insurrection hearing. So, yeah, there are some things. And, yeah, it looks like, listen, in Michigan, Kelly is a pretty good name. I don't know what kind of money he's got. Uh, he was a, he's a good grassroots uh, person. He's, uh, he's been involved in a number of uh, issues against the current governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, he didn't like uh, her COVID policies, et cetera. But, uh, you know, we just went through a scandal just last week where five of uh, uh, some very leading and well-financed candidates for Michigan governor got kicked off the ballot because they submitted phony petition signatures to get on the ballot. So we've had a lot of problems in Michigan on the Republican side for those who want to be governor. Charlie Langdon, reporter for WWJ in Detroit. Charlie, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Phil Mickelson, widely considered one of the greatest golfers of all times, won six PGA major championships, a Masters three times, now among 17 players suspended from the PGA Tour because he's taking part in a new golf league funded by Saudi Arabia. Concerns have been raised about that country's human rights abuses and how playing at the Live Golf International outside of London could indirectly support those. Then there's the competition with the PGA. With us is Steve DeMeglio, senior writer for Golf Week and USA Today golf reporter. Steve, thanks for being with us. I mean, uh, this country, the U.S., we do business, the country does, with Saudi Arabia all the time. Why the fuss about somebody who is playing in a golf tournament, even if it is supported by Saudi Arabia? Well, I don't know how much investment Saudi Arabia has in in companies. I know they have uh, substantial investments in a lot of companies in the United States. I don't know if they're on boards. I don't know if uh, they have any influence on what that corporation does. But as far as this golf league, they have direct involvement because they're funding the insane amounts of money that are going towards the players. And basically what they're doing is buying a part of the sport in hopes of sports washing. Uh, They're being charged with sports washing over their human rights atrocities. I mean, if the reports of the signing bonuses that have been given to some of these players are true, they've committed more than $800 million before those guys even took a shot. So um, they have no... They have no interest in making any money because there's no way they can make back that money. So basically what they're doing is trying to buy a part of the sport, um, and it kicked off today. So we'll see what happens in the future. What is the, the PGA Tour saying in this this statement that they put out? What's the reason given? Is it that uh, they went over there and not supposed to and, and were mad at you, or you didn't get clearance for doing this first? I mean, what do they have them on? 
Well, first of all, the PGA Tour did not put out the statement. It was a memo to the players that got leaked, um, and that's their fallback because the PGA Tour rarely, if ever, announces any disciplinary action. Um, yes, every one of the players that played and lived in the Live Golf Series, plus many, many others who applied for a conflicting event release, meaning that if there is an event you want to play in that's opposite a PGA Tour event, you have to get a release according to the regulations of the PGA Tour from the PGA Tour, and you get up to three of those per year. Um, and Commissioner Jay Monahan denied all those releases. And you go back as far as the Honda Classic earlier this year where he told the players, pick a side. If you want to play in the Live Golf Series, go play that. If you want to play the PGA Tour, play the PGA Tour, but you can't play both. So today wasn't surprising. Um, all these players uh, who signed, they did sign the rules and regulations for this season, um, and they broke that rule, and they broke their oath. Uh, to the PGA Tour, and thus uh, they've been suspended an unspecified amount of time. I would imagine it would be to the end of the season. Um, so we will not see Phil Mickelson on the PGA Tour, Dustin Johnson, Sergio Garcia, Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood, uh, Bryson DeChambeau, who's reportedly going to play in the second live series. Patrick Reed is going to play in the second live series. There's other names being bantied about. Um, and so, uh, because in today's memo, Monaghan, the commissioner reiterate, if you join the league after this week, you also will be suspended for the rest of the year. So have we heard at all from uh, Phil, for example, uh, Phil talked, he's talked twice. He talked today after his round, he shot, uh, 69, which I think is remarkable because hasn't played golf since the first week of February. Um, and uh, he talked yesterday. He said he will not talk. He did not resign his membership from the PGA Tour. Some players did, including Kevin Na, Sergio Garcia, Dustin Johnson. Um, they resigned their membership, so they can't play. The rest of the year, they can't play in the President's Cup. Uh, well, Dustin Johnson, the Americans, can't play in the President's Cup. Um, Phil said he will not talk about his relationship and his membership status with the PGA Tour. But I don't know how what his answer would be now because he's suspended. Um, he can't play. Now, as far as the two remaining major championships, the U.S. Open next week and the Open Championship next month, uh, the USGA, which runs the U.S. Open, has said the players that are playing this week in the Live Series can play if they qualified. And the Open Championship run by the RNA has yet to make their decision official, but I would imagine they will follow suit with the U.S. Open and the USGA and allow them to play. But then next year, it's going to be a whole different story. Steve DiMeglio, senior writer for Golf Week and USA Today golf reporter. Steve, thanks. We're starting to learn more about how the pandemic is impacting little kids, and the data is not that good. New evidence starting to show developmental delays and behavioral uh, problems in children born shortly before or during the pandemic. Dr. Rahil Briggs, a national director of Healthy Steps, which provides early childhood developmental supports to families at their uh, pediatric visits. Doctor, thanks for being here. So what are some of these uh, problems and delays that we're seeing in this uh, you know, COVID generation? 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The data are just starting to come out, quite frankly, and children are developing some of them their entire lives within this COVID pandemic. If you're two years old, you've spent 100% of your lives in this COVID pandemic. And we're seeing some evidence of language delays, some evidence of social emotional delays. It's important to note that when babies and toddlers are stressed, they might show that in different ways. It might be crying, regression, social anxiety. Some of these kids have never been to a grocery store and seen all the strangers and all the things that can happen in a grocery store. So we're really seeing a wide variety of developmental delays, social emotional delays, and really that stress and anxiety. Yeah, I was going to ask, do we have any clue about how much of this is biological in nature and how much is, you have just mentioned, uh, you know, uh, not going to grocery stores, so socialization in effect? It's the age-old question of nature versus nurture, and the smartest folks out there have said it's not one or the other. It's often a combination of both. You know, biology starts prenatally. And so the amount of stress that an expectant mother is experiencing during pregnancy can affect all sorts of things. We know that caregiver and parent stress beyond all other factors will have the most impact on infant and toddler stress, right? So is that biology or is that the inability when you're incredibly stressed as an adult to really buffer your child from all those stressors outside? often a combination of both. Well, that brain is a sponge, right, early on, and so it's going to soak up everything that's good, it's going to soak up everything that's bad, and some of these kids have had mostly bad. You're exactly right. Families who were stressed before the pandemic have only been more stressed, and although there was the child tax credit expansion early on in the pandemic, of course, that only lasted that first year. We knew that lifted a huge chunk of families out of poverty, but momentarily. Right. And so absolutely the importance of supporting families so that they can import, support children during these really critical early years of life when the brain is disproportionately receptive, disproportionately that super, super duper soaker up sponge can't be overstated. And these are, are, are kids that uh, had COVID themselves or their parent, their mothers had COVID is, is, or both? No, I, I don't know of so much data that is specific to children who've experienced COVID or their caregivers who've experienced COVID. It's really just looking at the effect of the pandemic in general mm. on caregivers and babies and seeing declines in emotional connection scores or seeing concerns about language, right. but not so much related to the effects of COVID biologically or illness-wise but the ways in which childcare settings shut down, hmm. early intervention programs shut down, libraries were no longer available to families, and other stressors of living just became overwhelming. When you go through that much stress, especially early on, do you kind of get wired to think that it's always going to be that stressful? So everywhere, like every environment you put me in, I'm always kind of looking around. I don't know what's going to happen because that's what I've become used to. And then if so, how do you untie that? It's a good question, and the answer really depends on how long that lasts, right? Brains are particularly active during the first few years of life, and people talk about more than a million neural connections every single second in those early years of life, and what that means 
is that you're going through a lot of use it or lose it and pruning, right? And it might be what makes kids so resilient because all these neural pathways are getting created and other ones pruned, but it's also what leaves kids really vulnerable. So it depends on how long this lasts for and how many other kinds of experiences happen. You know, just being socially isolated doesn't mean that this is incredibly excessive stress activation. When parents are supported and caregivers are supported, there can be very rich and wonderful experiences that happen within socially isolated homes. But it's that infrastructure around families that we need to do a much better job of because these early years are so critical. I'm curious, is it possible to look back uh, in history and look at uh, perhaps if there were developmental issues with children, for example, who were born during you know World War II or the Great Depression or other sort of cataclysmic events that had profound effects on the entire world and on, on whole family units? You know, it's a great question. And I think the most interesting studies of that actually come out of the Bucharest Early Intervention Project. So that was a randomized control trial of foster care as an alternative to orphanage care in Romania uh, during the Ceausescu regime there. And scientists have done a pretty extraordinary job of showing how important it was that these kids got out of that institutional care and into supportive families before they turned two or three years old, that there was really a critical period where they wanted to make sure that they got the children into, into better, uh, better families. Dr. Raheel Briggs, National Director, Healthy Steps, provides early childhood development support to families at their pediatric visits. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. NASA, curious about UFOs, setting up an independent group of investigators to take a look at them. Yeah, the study will begin in the fall, take about nine months to complete, and then we will get a public report. Should we expect to find earth-shattering news like, I don't know, aliens are behind it all? <laughs> Can you imagine if that was the goal? <laughs> yeah. First line of the thing, mission statement, find the aliens. <laughs> uh, with us is uh, Michael Wall, senior writer for Space.com. He's been following all this. Michael, thanks for being with us. Yeah, so, yeah sure so why now? Uh, I mean, you know, people have been, you know, talking about looking for some say even abducted by UFOs for decades. Why is NASA now doing this independent investigation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it is. It's it's it sort of follows on to what we've seen with with the department with with U.S. military. Right? They've come out and been more open about looking into these things and trying to remove that kind of long held stigma that's attached to people who say they've seen something they can't identify and. Where is it? What 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 could it be? And so so I think NASA sort of is has like recognized that this is something that kind of falls within their their bailiwick because they do look for signs of alien life and they do investigate strange phenomena in our skies. And so they're like, well, I mean, we like we want to help take some of the stigma off this, too. And we, we want to to see if we can add our expertise to this. And so they've sort of jumped into it now. So what's going to make it different from what the military's been doing? Is this more of a like, hey, somebody saw something up there uh, out the space station window? Because that would make it different, right, than just flying around over the ocean somewhere. Yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting. I mean, NASA said that this for, this is just a first step. So, yeah, we, we shouldn't expect like a like 
some some blockbuster study coming out of this when when this investigation is done in like nine months. Um, what what they said that they're going to do is is kind of go through all of the data and try to figure out what the data landscape looks like right now with all the UFO sightings and reports and all this stuff because it's like it's it's a real mishmash of reports some from from military pilots and from from the sensors on their navy jets which are like pretty good reports right that's pretty good data but there's all this other stuff you know from people we we don't know where they were when they saw what they saw. There's just all this stuff that's sort of random that they're going to try to collate to. So what NASA said this initial effort's going to be is just look at the data that they have, that we all have. How can it be analyzed? How can we collect better data in the future and sort of lay out like a, just, yeah, just sort of like a path forward to like make this a real scientific area of study. Now, you know, I'm sure that there are people out there, which now that I think about it, sounds like the opening to a movie. There are people out there. Well, the truth is out there, <laughs> the right? Truth is out there, yeah, 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 files reference. <laughs> but there are people out there who are already sort of saying, well, you know why the Pentagon released its report uh, and now NASA is getting into it? They're preparing us because they already know something. Is that? Is there any truth to that? I would not lean that way. I'm not a conspiracy theorist by nature. I wouldn't think so. I, I mean, I think what we're seeing with, with the DOD's acceptance of kind of getting this research out into the open, like I think why the U.S. military has sort of pushed this into the public sphere is because they're they're legitimately worried that maybe some of these objects are like Chinese drones or or sort of Russian drones or some kind of technology that 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 an adversary nation might have that we don't know about and also like the military probably wants to get this sort of issue out in the public eye more and so Congress is aware of it so maybe they can get a little more money to investigate it that's also something that does happen with with stuff like this you know if we like if we make this public and, and it becomes a public issue and Congress gets aware of it, then there's there's a higher chance there'll be more funding allocated to study it. I, I don't think NASA is trying to ride those coattails or anything, but but I think NASA is genuinely interested in this. I mean, they, they held a press conference today where, where some of their scientific leaders talked about what the motivation was, and they were saying they were not told by anybody to do this. They were not told by the military to do this. They just have felt like there's this is out there now in the public eye, and it's something that should be a legitimate scientific question. No kind of tinfoil hat stuff. It's let's 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 look at this as a scientific question and see how yeah, I mean, how can we like yeah, sort of attack it from a scientific angle better than we're doing now. All right, that's Michael Wall, senior writer for Space.com. Okay, listen up. You're driving along. Yes. Okay, and you notice a lane on the road or freeway uh-huh. next to you. It is about to end. i got to get over. Uh-huh. Well, some drivers in that lane will merge early, uh-huh. but there's always that one driver who waits until the last minute to merge right... Right at the end. Right before the lane ends. Just kind of swoops in there. Yeah. It's like, it's like where do you come from? And then people are shaking their fists and yelling yeah. out the windows thinking that that guy is a jerk, right? Uh, absolutely. But uh, maybe they're actually doing it the right way. Really? Zipper merging. With us to talk about this is Jacob Loesch, spokesman for Minnesota's Department of Transportation. They have started an education campaign about zipper merging. Uh, Jacob, so how's that going over, and is this really the way we're supposed to do it? It is the way you're supposed to do it. Hey, uh, good to be with you guys today. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, I know it can feel it can feel unusual. It can feel like you're breaking the rules or you're being rude or budging in front of people. Um, but we encourage people to use both lanes of traffic until that merge point. So, you know, I mean, you, otherwise you end up with one lane of traffic completely being unused and a big long line of cars backed up. So 
it may seem rude, um, it may seem tough to do, but it's actually the best way to get everybody moving faster and uh, cut down on that congestion. But is the reason why people don't do it because they think it, it's being rude, which is not a problem I ever had? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm in Minnesota, and I know we don't have anything like L.A. traffic, but we got our fair share of congestion here. And, um, you know, I think... I think it's just natural when you when you're driving and you see a sign telling you a lane's closed, you want to get over right away. It just feels like the right thing to do. So it, it really does feel almost kind of counterintuitive to stay there until the very end. But that's part of what we're trying to encourage, like, you know, where we put signage, even, for example, telling people where to merge. We put the signage later, hoping that 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 they'll stay in that lane until sort of the very end where there's cones start and start to merge over. Have you seen the, the delays actually decrease because because i guess you know like you said the the idea is keep everybody in that mm-hmm. lane longer and then you're not jamming up the other one yeah i mean when it when it works effectively we, we've seen traffic backups reduced by you know about as much as 40 percent. but the reality is not everybody does it and it, it's a challenging thing that we're going to continue educating drivers on and it relies on two things really one using that lane until it closes uh, but also for the people in the other lane that stays open you know, you got to let a car in front of you and it's not going to get you anywhere slower. You're not going to get backed up. You're not going to take any longer to get where you're going, but you take turns like a zipper. I mean, we all learn this when we're kids, right? It's not that hard of a concept to do. Take turns. One car goes in, the next one behind and everybody keeps moving, moving smoother. Um, but it, it's a challenge and it's constantly something we're working to educate drivers on. But, you know, I guess my biggest beef, and and Mike and I were talking about this during the break, is the person who's in front of me, right? And they are now trying to merge, and you're expecting them to really accelerate so that you can then go. And instead, they seem to slow down, (laughs) and they try to merge, (laughs) and they, like, decrease their speed from 60 down to 10. (laughs) And I I don't get that. It's, it's a, there's just some, I, I, we can't always explain this sort of weird behavior, what, what people are, what drives people to do the things they do. It, it, at the, the end of the day, everybody keeps moving at the same speeds and merging in together is how it moves smoothest. We know that that's how it works best. We've seen it work. Um, but, you know, it does rely on a lot of factors. And sometimes there's always those rogue drivers who can throw things off a little bit. But we try and remind people to just, you know, we, we use the phrase resist the urge to merge early. It's a bit of a tongue twister. But if you get it in your head as you're approaching one of those mo- those merge points, um, usually helps people think through it. So there's there's that example from Charles, and then there's the the one you mentioned before. The people, some people, just will not let anyone in for oh, yeah. any circumstance. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why do people not let? Because it's that it's that old thing, you know, people who gun it at the stoplight, it's, it's and an then ego. you get trapped at the next yeah. one, right? It's an ego We're all going to get there at the same time. It, it's, it's an ego totally, thing. Isn't I, it? I think it's totally an ego thing. You know, people sit and say, "Well, I've been waiting in this line forever. It's my turn first. It's like, well, is one more car in front of you really going to be that big of a problem for you? No, it's not. But we all think, you know, we're trying to get everywhere as fast as we possibly can, right? And oh, I'm not going to let one more car in front of me. When in reality, if you're that guy who's not letting somebody in, if you're bumper to bumper in the car in front of you and not letting another car merge in, you're actually the problem. You're helping slow down traffic and get everybody where they're going slower. So at, at the end of the day, isn't the real then uh, issue that most people probably shouldn't be driving? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yes. I can't even argue with you there. You're probably right. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Let's face it. Most people should not be in a car. You know, we've talked about before is, yeah. is the, the, the idea that you're looking at somebody and, and you're thinking they think they're the only ones out here. 
Yeah, like that there's right, no yeah. one else around them, that it might just be bumper cars at the fair or whatever, because the yeah. way that they're just cruising down the road or on the phone or reading a book, uh, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's like they're the only ones that are using the road today, yeah. when in actuality, the rest of us are trying to get someplace. <laughs> it is. I mean, driving such an individual thing, right? You can control what's going on in your car, but you have no idea what another driver is going to do. And I think that's it, it is sort of that collective goal here, right? We all, we are, we're all traveling somewhere. We're all trying to get everywhere safe and get there as fast as we can. Um, and in this case, when you reach construction, you've got a merge point. If you use both lanes, you're all going to get where you're going smoother. But convincing people of that is, is the tricky part. It's one thing we know. But just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not, uh, not something we want to keep trying. And this is apparently not just a problem for one state, right? This is like a national disease almost. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's 30 some states that have now incorporated zipper merge into driver education. Some states have even made it, you know, the law that you have to merge late. We haven't quite done that in Minnesota yet. Um, But my understanding is it may also be a kind of uniquely American problem because drivers in Europe and and other places I've heard this is fairly common practice. Um, So I don't know what it is about us, but we, we seem to have a challenge with it. Um, but it is. I mean, I think states all over the country are grappling with, with how to educate drivers on this and try and shift that behavior a little. Jacob Loach, spokesman for Minnesota's Department of Transportation. So we need to do a follow-up segment on why they, they seem to do a better job driving, as he just said, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Why, why do yeah. they do it right and we get it wrong? <laughs> We're America. <laughs> We should be exceptional at driving. Exactly. (laughs) All right. That's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.